0: Hello, this is the UCLA Housing Voice podcast, and I'm your host, Shane Phillips. Joining us this week is Professor Peter Ganong of the University of Chicago to talk about the maybe not so complicated relationship between land use regulations, housing supply, household migration, and the convergence of per capita incomes between poor states and rich states. Also, shark repellent. Prior to about 1980, income gaps between poor states and rich states had been consistently shrinking, in large part due to the migration of lower-wage or lower-skill workers toward higher-paying metro areas. But as we clamped down on home building over the years in our most productive cities and states, that migration dried up, and now we're at the point where low-wage workers are actually leaving high-paying places. Net of housing costs Low-wage workers are often worse off when they move to places like Los Angeles and New York, and that's a fairly new phenomenon with troubling implications for access to opportunity and income inequality, and we're going to dig into that. One thing to note, at one point, the name of Anita Summers is mentioned, and that's a reference to the Wharton School's Residential Land Use Regulatory Index, which she helped create. Just know that when you hear her name, it is in reference to that index. The Housing Voice podcast is a production of the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies with production support from Claudia Bustamante and Jason Suteja. As always, feedback and show ideas can go to me at shanephillips at ucla.edu, and we would love to have your support in the form of a five-star rating or a review. Let's get to our conversation with Professor Peter Ganong. Peter Ganong is an associate professor of economics at the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy, and he's here with us today to talk about land use regulation, migration, and regional income convergence, which we'll define momentarily. Peter, welcome to the Housing Voice podcast. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. And Mike Manville is my co-host today. Hey, Mike. Hey, guys. Good to see you both. So as always, we will kick things off by asking our guest, Peter, for a quick tour of somewhere that you know and love. So where's that place for you?
1: What do you like to show friends and colleagues when they come visit you? So I live in Chicago, uh, which is where my grandmother, Ruth Ganong, grew up. And I actually want to tell you about what's potentially her favorite place and also my favorite place. So she grew up admiring the architecture and tall buildings in downtown Chicago, and decided when she was six that she wanted to be an architect. She studied arch- architecture as an undergraduate. She finished college, was living in Boston, went to the MIT Architecture School, and asked if she could enroll. There were no women enrolled there, and they were uh, couldn't really imagine taking her. So she went to the local night school, then called Boston Architectural College, now called Boston Architectural Center, um, and was the first woman to graduate from that architecture school. Wow. uh it, like when she was like i don't know 80 or something she got an honorary degree from there which was really amazing um mm-hmm. and because you know at th- that point became like a thing to be valorized as opposed to a you know a problem to admit women and so she you know she had a career as an architect before she had kids after she had kids uh she was a homemaker for a while and she bought an empty plot of land on albany hill which is in the east so albany is directly north of berkeley albany used to be the town dump of berkeley and then eventually like the local residents got sick of the trash and incorporated to prevent the trash from arriving. And so she bought an empty plot of land on Albany Hill, which has a view of uh, the San Francisco Bay, and designed her own house and built her own house. And gradually, other, you know, they sold off the other plots of land and other houses got built on Albany Hill. And when you look out from Albany Hill at the East Bay, which is like a, a view that I remember really vividly from my childhood, the first thing you see is a park which is built on top of all the trash. So... Um, we call it the Albany Bulb. It's officially, called, I had to look up the official name for this podcast, but it's called East Shore State Park. And it was a place where as a kid, I would go walking, running, flying model planes with my dad. There used to be a ton of like really weird art down at the far end of the bulb. Some of it is still there. And I, I asked my, my uncle said that told me he once found um, a washed up World War II survival kit with uh, chocolate and tablets for if you'd been attacked by a shark that you were supposed to eat, um, like <laughs> on the bulb. So like everything in the world washes up there. But it's also you know a beautiful parkland and like I guess I'd say a beautiful and really interesting parkland. So it's like both a place I have fond memories of and a place that I would encourage anyone else to to you know go for a walk if they're in the East Bay. We'll also talk a little bit about what Albany and Chicago can. As, as different tracks teach us about housing policy in the more modern era later, but I'll just start by saying like I've really fond memories of going running and walking and flying planes on the Albany bulb growing up i
2: just i that's a a great answer, and I'm just so curious now as to what exactly a tablet was supposed to do for you if a shark <laughs> had been here.
0: <laughs> hey, like if I know anything from Batman, and so you need the repellent, you need the spray, right? But not the, a tablet. The, the shark is out of the barn once it's been. <laughs> <out> of-
1: <laughs> so he he found once there shark repellent tablets, but it wasn't clear if you were supposed to eat them before or after oh. you were attacked by the shark. I asked him if he <sighs> ever ate them, and he said that he did not eat them. He also said that the chocolate was had turned to powder, and so was basically inel- inedible as well.
2: All right, this is fascinating, and so we do have to talk about housing, but later we'll do a totally separate <laughs> podcast about World War II era shark repelling.
0: Well, and I do feel like having been to Chicago uh, a few times, it it sort of has a reputation architecturally as um, much beloved, and I'm not surprised that it inspired your grandmother to want to become an architect. I think it's probably done that for a lot of people. So the paper we're talking about today is in the Journal of Urban Economics, and its title is a question. Why has regional income convergence in the U.S. declined? Your co-author is Daniel Shoag. And while the study was published a ways back in 2017, I don't think it's any less relevant today. And so we'll start here with the, the very basics. What is regional income convergence? And how has the trajectory of gaps in regional income changed
1: over the decades? So regional income convergence is, in the context of the U.S., poor states catching up to rich states. That's, that's the whole thing. So mm-hmm. if you look at from 1940 to 1960, the poorest states in the U.S., places like Mississippi, Arkansas, Alabama, were growing at about 5% a year. The richest states, places like Connecticut, Nevada, that's the gold, the gold rush and the mining, California, New Jersey, Delaware, Massachusetts— we're growing at about one and a half percent per year, so much you know almost like three times as slowly. Mm-hmm. What that means if the poor states grow faster than the rich states is incomes are converging, or we'll call it convergence. If you look say from nineteen ninety to twenty ten or from two thousand to twenty twenty the poor states and the rich states are growing at similar rates, which is to say that there's no convergence going on. the poor places are not catching up to the rich places anymore. And the key fact that grabbed us when trying to understand why regional income convergence had slowed down is there's another change that happened simultaneously in U.S. history, which is that between 1940 and 1960, or any other 20-year you know, window in the most of the 20th century, people were moving on net from poor states to rich states. So the rich states had a lot of population growth. The poor states did not. The poor states sometimes would have even negative growth, so people moving out on net. And that's a force which, in an economic model, can help poor places to catch up with rich places, people moving from the poor places to the rich places. From 1990 to 2010, on net, people were not moving from the poor places to the rich places. So those places had equal population growth. And this is a puzzle from the perspective of a you know first-year graduate student, as I was when I started working on this paper, Like, why won't people move from poorer places to richer places? There has to be something else or some other set of forces that are offsetting the basic economic incentive to migrate. And so that was sort of the the jumping off point for this paper, is that we had an engine of regional convergence in incomes, and also an engine of personal economic mobility, moving from poor places to rich places. And that engine sputtered to a stop starting around 1980. And I think that's probably a lot of what we'll talk about um, in the rest of mm-hmm. our time together today. Yeah. And we'll get to the, the why here in a few moments, but you
0: know, this might go without saying, but I think we should say it. Why should we care or be concerned about this reduction in regional income convergence? Like what, what makes this a bad thing or is it a bad thing?
1: I think that you should care most about economic opportunity for people. And I don't think inherently that we, want incomes to be equal across space or want incomes to be unequal across space i think there's both good and bad reasons for regional inequality i think you should be focused most on what are the consequences of not being able to move to a rich place as a sort as an engine of personal economic mobility and then somewhat relatedly what are the sort of efficiency consequences or you know like i think enrico moretti would call this the gdp consequences of not being able to to move freely to the, the places that offer the most economic opportunity. And you have a hypothesis about why
0: income convergence started slowing down around 1980, or at least about one of the major contributing factors. And it comes down to the relationship between housing supply on one hand and household migration between states with lower per capita income and higher per capita income on the other hand. In the paper, you explain the mechanism for declining regional income convergence using three stylized facts, which is economists speak for simplified but broadly accurate observations about the world. So let's just start with what are those three
1: facts? Three facts. First, places where incomes are higher have always had higher housing prices in the U.S., but the strength of that relationship got quite a bit steeper from 1960 to 2010, So it used to be that a 1% increase in income was about a 1% increase in housing prices. As of 2010, a 1% increase in income is associated with a 2% increase in housing prices. So when you move from a lower income place to a richer place, you lose more of that gain by having to spend it on housing or having to spend it on, you know, Interest costs on a mortgage is something that's very salient now. You'll pay a lot more in mortgage interest in a rich place than a poor place relative to what that gradient was, say, in 1960. Fact number two this increase in housing prices in high income places has particularly pernicious effects on low skill workers. The easiest way to think about this in the economics before we do the statistics is everyone needs a place to live, and the price of land doesn't care if you are rich or poor. And so you can get a very fancy kitchen or you can get a very stripped down kitchen. And, you know, in Chicago, there's all sorts of fancy, th- fancy things they can install in bathrooms. You don't need those fancy things in your bathroom. But at the end of the day, you need a certain number of square feet. And that set a certain amount of square feet has to sit on some land. And, you know, when my grandma bought her plot of land on Albany Hill, that land was cheap as that land gets more expensive, it gets more expensive for everyone regardless of whether their incomes are high or their incomes are low. Rising housing prices hit low-skill workers harder than they hit high-skill workers. They erode Mm -hmm. more of the gains to migration for low-skill workers than they do for high-skill workers. What that means is that the incentive to migrate when housing prices go up in a place is going to be reduced more for a low-income worker or a, a worker who doesn't hasn't finished high school than it is for a worker who has finished high school or has finished college. The final fact and third fact is to connect these changes in housing prices and housing prices by group to changes in migration. So as I mentioned earlier, from 1940 to 1960, or around that time, people were moving on net from low-income places to high-income places. That was true in 1940, both if you did not graduate from high school and if you did graduate from high school. That was also true in 1940 if you ignore housing costs or if you take housing costs into account. Put otherwise, housing costs are not a key driver of migration decisions in 1940. It's about the income that's offered in different places. Let's fast forward now to 2000, uh, and data in particular from the 2000 census we found something that we thought was a bug in the code when we first saw it which is that people who had not finished college as of 2000 were moving away from high income places why on earth would you move away from a high income place if if it's going to pay you more i mean there's got to be something else at work and i'm not saying that people's decisions are all driven by money i'm saying that it begs it begs the question why. However, if you look at workers who have graduated from college, they still are moving on net to places that have high incomes. So we call this skill sorting. That in the highest income places, you have population growth among workers with BAs, and you have population shrinkage among workers without BAs. To use like a a crude metaphor that I I, I think of when thinking about this paper. When housing prices go up, part of what happens is that high-skill workers are quite literally pushing out low-skill workers in an accounting sense, right? There's a certain number of housing units. If you don't build more housing in a place that has opportunity, the price of housing goes up and only some people can afford that housing. And that basic idea of swapping out high-skill workers for low-skill workers, I think is really important for thinking about coastal economies in the U.S. today.
2: Absolutely. And I think another way of thinking about this um, is that in over – it sounds like based on what you're saying that over time, these high-income places have – they don't work as well for low-income people as they once did, right? It, it's still that basic idea that – I mean I think all of us who grew up in the United States, we learn about it in in, in some ways kind of a jingoistic way in social studies like you know we – we packed up and moved and followed opportunity, whether it was immigrants to the country or going west and all the, the good and bad things that entailed. I mean, the element of truth in that was that you could leave your place wherever you were, and it was difficult, but find some more opportunity somewhere else. And you know, with all the caveats that this wasn't, this was never totally equal. The idea of migration did work for the sort of high skilled and low skilled people to some extent, and now. It's just a lot harder for a low-income person, for instance, to say, oh, one of the most prosperous places in the country is San Francisco or Boston. I'll move there, right? But if you're a newly minted college graduate, you can still say that. Is that like kind of a
1: fair summary? That was great, and I have a fact for you, Michael. We first thought that migration was driven perhaps less by economic decisions. That's not true at all. Instead, migration appears to be driven by income net of housing costs. So what I mean by that is low-skill workers in the U.S. are still moving to places that offer them economic opportunity. It's just that the set of places that offer low-skill workers economic opportunity and high-skill workers economic opportunity have diverged. So now it's going to be places with lower housing costs like inland in California, so a little further away from where you are in L.A., Places in Texas, places in Florida, places in North Carolina, these are places with jobs where housing hasn't yet gotten expensive, although, you know, if we don't change our norms. I'm sure it'll get expensive there too. And so everyone's migrating to the places that work for them. It's just that the set of places that offer opportunity are no longer shared. And frankly, the places that offer opportunity to low-skill workers are, you know, not the places with the strongest public service per- services as compared to prior times.
2: Yeah. And I think that goes back to your point you know, very, very clearly makes the point that or reinforces the point you made earlier about sort of, you know, we should care about this in part because this regional convergence represents, in some ways, it's a byproduct of, of opportunity for people. And if what we're seeing is that, you know, the, the places that on some absolute level offer the most opportunity are now not doing that for a certain group of people. I mean, you, you don't have to care about regional convergence per se, to see that that's actually quite troubling, right? That our our most prosperous areas are, you know, they're off limits. And so the what really works for our lower income residents uh, who want to move is actually a, a, a list of places, a lower rung down.
0: It's really hard to see how this could all work out positively in the end too, when you have some places that, you know, are only really hospitable to high income workers and people doing the kind of jobs that uh, go along with that. And then lower skill or less educated workers just going to completely different metro areas and sort of concentrating there. Economies are a mix of people kind of all up and down the, the skill spectrum. And to have them segregated in this way is, is I don't know, like, I don't know what the the precedent is for it. You did bring up this point about how lower skill, lower wage workers, they just spend a larger share of their income on housing. And, and so even, you know, a, a flat 10%, 30% increase in housing costs is going to necessarily affect someone more if they're already paying half of their income on rent versus someone who's paying a quarter of their income yep. on rent. And this is something that's, that seems really obvious. And it's, it's obvious when you think about it in, in retrospect, but I hadn't really thought about it in exactly those terms. Um, and it does kind of just illustrate how the after housing income is really important here. And, you know, again, if you're paying half your income on rent and over a 10-year period, rent goes up 50% and your wages don't, now you're paying 75% of your income on rent, right? Like that's, that's a huge, huge difference, a huge burden. I
1: think the basic point I would just say is, you know, it's not a coincidence mm-hmm. that a lot of these expensive cities have a lot of homelessness. You know, yeah. that's, that's a, natural, a natural outcome of a system that's designed to not produce new housing. So as I mentioned at the top, I think one of the main contributions of the paper is not just to
0: identify this decline in income convergence, but to ascribe some of that phenomenon to restrictive land use regulations and more directly to the limited housing construction that results from those regulations. Before, in most places, housing supply was more elastic, meaning housing production was able to increase sufficiently or or more sufficiently, at least, in response to rising demand and rising incomes. Afterward, You know, say, post 1970, 1980, various restrictions made the housing supply less elastic. It was harder to build homes. And since rising demand requires some kind of outlet, it went to higher prices instead. I want to point something out here because it might seem counterintuitive. One might think that allowing lots of new housing would increase income divergence, by which I mean, you know, increasing the gap between regional per capita incomes. And the reason is because new housing is generally affordable only to people earning more than the median household income. New things just generally are more expensive than old things, so that's pretty much unavoidable. But that means that the people moving into these new homes are, are pulling up the median household income in their region, or it, it might seem that way. That would be the case if the residents of those new homes were all coming from some other region, for example. And if the construction of those new homes did nothing to create vacancies in older, less expensive units or to stabilize housing prices generally, as we've talked about on this podcast many times. Mike might want to chime in on this, too, but I think it would be helpful if you could talk more about or or let's get into how the responsiveness of housing supply to increasing demand and household migration and regional income convergence all come together. What are the different elements of that process or the the links in the chain that lead us from building housing that's relatively expensive to an outcome where the income gaps are actually shrinking between these
1: high income and low income states. Great. So I think there are times in economics when things are complicated. And I think there are times when things are simple. And (laughs) this one is simple. Build more houses. Prices go up less. Everyone Mm -hmm. has access to a metro area when Housing supply is plentiful and people keep moving there. Turn off the spigot of construction. So let's go back to my grandma's house on, on Albany Hill. I have a sentimental attachment to it, but it's a huge problem that that house is still there. There should be like at least three or five units <laughs> there, to be honest. And you know, in Chicago, when an old single family comes on the market, we knock it down and we build four units. And that's how housing's really cheap and consistently cheap in Chicago. My grandma's house is still there. And it's really expensive if someone wants to buy it, or it was expensive when someone sold it. And it's really expensive when someone wants to move to the Bay Area. And so lots of people don't move there as a result. You know, the the rest is just math. You know, if people moving into an area mutes wage growth across U.S. states and, and also in an mo- economic model. This is just through competition with each other, basically. Yes. So when labor is scarce, the price of labor is high. When labor is plentiful, the price of labor is is lower. However, we're already talking about high-income places. So the only question is, are we going to let more workers join high in- places that are high-income, or are we not? And when you make a decision as a you know set of communities that we're, we're not going to build enough housing to accommodate the number of workers that we want to hire, some of those workers won't come, and some of those workers will pay more in housing, and it's not neutral. So the workers who are able to afford it are the ones who will come, and the workers who are not able to afford it are the ones who will not come. And that'll also have downstream effects on income. I guess something that your questions are making me realize in a way that is fun or good is, I think we wrote this paper primarily because we cared about migration patterns. And I almost feel like if we were to write this paper again today, we would have written a paper primarily about migration patterns for workers and housing prices. And then we would have said at the end, Oh yeah, by the way, this has implications for regional income convergence. But I think your mm-hmm. questions are helping me to, you know, we started with a puzzle and then in some sense we you end up with this path dependence where you don't rewrite the paper to the thing you care about the most, but mm-hmm. this conversation is helping me to appreciate the thing I think I I care about the most, and I think you should care about the most is really the you know the different the availability of opportunity and the availability of opportunity particularly th- across regions and through housing. Um, and so income convergence is the last step, but it's like not the most important part of the chain. The most important part is housing supply and then broad economic opportunity that is created by housing supply. Right. The the income convergence is sort of a, an output or a metric, a way of
0: measuring, you know, the effectiveness of, of offering people opportunity and so forth. But it's not the thing itself that you're really directly concerned with.
1: I think that the three of us should write a letter to the editor of the Journal of Economic Urban <laughs> Economics asking if we could change the title of the paper and just say, you know, like we realized talking on a podcast that we have a better title. Like, can we retitle the paper? <laughs> post? We'll see what they say. Yeah. My, my strong prior is that that won't really be honored, but it's <laughs> well, worth have saying. Have you ever tried, Michael?
2: If you haven't <laughs> I, tried. I, I never have. It's true. I never have. I really have no basis for that other than my intuition. And that, that has led me astray more than once. Um, I just to, just to add on that answer, which I think is great. I mean, uh, the regional income convergence is, I mean, it sounds to me like it was, you know, it was the puzzle that got you initially interested. Right. I mean, and that's and it's a legitimate puzzle, because I think when you look at it, what you're saying to yourself in some ways is, well, what's what's interfering with uh, essentially the supply and demand of labor across these places from balancing out a little bit? And it turns out, as, as your grandmother's house illustrates very well, it's the supply and demand of housing. And you know we, we we beat this point to death on this podcast, but it's just another great example you know that this perception people have, which I think is understandable, which is that when you do build housing, the new housing's expensive, and how can that possibly help affordability and so forth, but just that there really are you know we've said it a hundred times there's there's two ways a region can produce kind of expensive housing right is one is that it can build new housing and because it's new, it's going to be expensive. And the other is it can choose not if it's growing to build new housing. And then it will turn all its old housing into expensive housing. Um, And that's a disastrous outcome because if you're going to have lower income people live in your region, they really rely on that older housing stock. And, you know, what's happened in, in Los Angeles and San Francisco is like housing units that are really pretty dumpy in a lot of ways now rent or sell for just astronomical prices and I just think about my own experience moving to Los Angeles 20 years ago. I lived in a you know rent stabilized dingbat in Mar Vista for not much money and I out of curiosity looked up its rent recently and it's it's gone up like 50 percent in real terms. I mean that an entry level a, a grad student moving to Los Angeles can't live in that place anymore.
1: Mm -hmm. what Shane one other way to answer your question and I bet we can after the show or in the show notes put a quantitative version of the statement is that in Chicago much of the housing stock is new and has been built in the last 30 years and you know it's increasing you know both square feet per unit and number of units whereas you know if you look at somewhere like you know where where my dad grew up the housing stock's really really old and so even Mm -hmm. though on a one-off basis you know you might I think there's a real political challenge around new construction, which is that it's shiny and it's selling for more than the cost of the other houses in the neighborhood. Like at the end of the day, Chicago is filled with new construction and uh, L.A. and San Francisco are not. And housing is a lot cheaper in Chicago. So, Mm -hmm. And we're talking about housing
0: here, but... uh, You know, in the paper, you are careful to note that housing regulations and prices don't explain all or even necessarily most of the decline in income conversions between states since 1980. This may be outside your wheelhouse as an economist. I don't know exactly what you're specializing in these days. It's certainly outside of the scope of our show. But I do think it's important to make that point clearly. This is not all about housing. So we don't have to dwell on this for long, but what else should we know about income convergence so we don't fall into the trap of thinking this is solely a story about housing and
1: land use? So I would just draw a small distinction. We do find that regulation explains most of the changes or more than half of the changes in income convergence, the way the, the regressions in the paper are set up. It's not particularly transparent on this point, And so Again, hopefully we can ask for a revision on the paper, but <laughs> there are a lot of other important forces that are shaping regional inequality. And the sort of most important one I would highlight, which was there in many papers before we wrote this one, is what's called skill-biased technological change, which is like a kind of alphabet soup mouthful, but basically means wages have been growing for college-educated workers faster than workers who haven't gone to college and particularly growing faster in these metros. And so that faster wage growth, we don't think of as being primarily caused by something about housing. We think about that as being something changed in terms of technology and or the institutions in the labor market, such that wages have been rising faster for college-educated workers than non-college-educated workers. That's not a housing story. That's something else else in the economy. Mm -hmm. I want to add one small detail, which is that, during the worst of the pandemic, this pattern actually reversed, and we saw substantial wage growth at the bottom, faster than the wage growth at the top. Economists are still trying to understand where that faster wage growth at the bottom came from. I don't think we understand yet, but the general pattern for the last 40 years has been that college-educated workers have had a faster wage growth, and that's another thing, given where college-educated workers tend to be clustered, as we talked about, that will affect the regional distribution of income as well.
2: One of the things we've talked about on this show with a number of our guests is just that the circumstantial evidence at this point that regulation is a a big culprit in our our failure to build housing in our expensive cities is quite large. But that almost everyone who comes on and talks about this, one of the first things they say is, well, measuring regulation is really hard, you know, because local governments have so many different ways they can conceivably uh, regulate housing. And so pinning it down lots of different ways uh, that have been employed by different researchers through different indices and and different measurements of housing supply. But one thing that makes your paper stand out to me is that you're able to put together not just a measurement of regulation, but a measurement of regulation that actually goes back quite a number of years. So it's quite novel. And to me, it's quite persuasive. And so uh, I'd love to have you just talk a little bit about how you guys came up with this measure. Well, first of all, of course, what the measure is why it seemed right to you and and what exactly you did to kind of build it?
1: That's a great question, Mike. So the key challenge, as you mentioned, is regulation is hard to measure, and it's especially hard to measure going back in time. And the sort of best measures of the way we do it is, is extraordinarily crude, and I really hope a graduate student right now is working to improve on this, is just doing word counts in court cases. So we count phrases like land use or zoning. You can see that there's been a lot more litigation, about land use and zoning in recent years than in prior years. And the way that we convinced ourselves that it wasn't total garbage is by comparing to this famous survey done at the University of Pennsylvania at the Warden School, where they basically asked uh, land use and zoning officials how stringent is, how hard is it to build where you live? And so what we did was we, for 2005, correlated how much are there's there litigation about land use and zoning with what did these city planners tell Anita, Anita Summers. That had a strong positive correlation, and that helped us to feel maybe we can use this to learn not just about 2005, but also about earlier, going back further in time. And so these search terms are crude. I really hope someone does better soon, but I do think that it captures a, a key idea that there's been a big change over time. We talked about this before with the sort of geography geography versus institutions point. And yeah, we're we're just we're just counting search terms, and hopefully someone will come up with something more sophisticated soon, or already has.
2: Yeah, and I mean, I mean your points well taken that that it's crude as you put it. I mean, it's it's going to be noisy because you know you're 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 probably going to capture a few things that aren't directly related to regulation, just because. But but I do think theoretically it makes sense in that even when you account for the fact that like idiosyncratically across states and across time. You're going to have court cases that mention land use, that mention zoning, that on the whole, if, if you just have enough cases and you guys did draw from a lot of cases, there's going to be a trend, which is that it you're unlikely to see someone filing suit over a regulation unless that regulation really is binding, right? I mean, if a, if a municipality passes a regulation that really has no effect at all on a developer's ability to do anything or a landowner's ability to do anything with their property, you know, uh, ceteris paribus, that's just less likely to wind up in court. And so I do think that in addition to, I mean, it makes, I'm sure it's reassuring to you that it lines up well with the Wharton Index, right? But I think even if it, even if there was no Wharton Index at all, to me at least intuitively, it makes sense in that, why do you go to court? Well, because something is stopping you from doing something you want to do, right? You're just not, you're not going to just find yourself in court for the heck of it, going to court's a giant pain in the neck. And so when I first encountered the paper, I said, yeah, I, I was, yeah, it's a noisy signal, but it, I think it is, in fact, a signal, um, and, and it does let you go back in time the way these really time-intensive surveys uh, don't.
1: I also remember one other tiny thing, which is just that we also, in the citations to the by, from the 2005 Warden survey, we found a 1975 survey from a group called the American Institute of Planners went down mm-hmm. to the stacks, which were underground, dug up the original survey, coded it up. Uh, And that the court case measures also correlate with that 1975 measure. And so then that also, again, Mm -hmm. made us, you know, it's it's hard if you run two different surveys 40 years apart, it's really hard to know what's the change over time been. But if you have a consistent measure, like how much are people suing about this, that's a way to get a measure over time. Right. And
2: these are um, just to be to to be clear, these are it's like it's state by state analyses of court cases. Is that right?
1: Yes, we tried to go substate and couldn't figure it out. There was a graduate student at UC Davis who did a substate study for California and I will have to we can put in the show notes a link to his paper um, but we couldn't figure out how to get substate uh, and then this this student did at least for California.
2: Yeah, and I think the only thing I would say about that is that in some regards, um, you're probably because of that, underestimating the stringency of some of the more stringent states because you're the place where where the housing is most needed where most of the demand is is going to be this that's a cool point right this narrow sliver of the coast of california but as you pointed out earlier the interior isn't really that regulated or go to new york um, metropolitan new york city of course highly regulated not that hard to build in syracuse and rochester and buffalo Um, and you've you've got the you know, you're, you're, so you're kind of diluting the actual the stringency of some of these uh, these really these really restrictive places. Yeah, so it can probably probably a conservative estimate of, uh, of stringency.
0: We like those. So in your analysis, you grouped states by high regulation or low regulation in terms of the, the restrictiveness of their land use rules. And it seems worth discussing how these two different groups interact income convergence is still occurring in the lower regulation states where it's easier to build housing, but it's not converging as as fast as it did prior to 1980. And I imagine that's partly because half of the income convergence equation involves moving to these higher wage states. And I should clarify that the, the higher wage, higher income states also tend to be the higher regulation ones generally. And you can Fill in all the gaps here and all the nuances uh, in a moment, but so we've got, you know, half of the equation is these higher wage states that are also higher regulation, but those places, you know, they're not actually building a lot of homes to move to, and so people can't go there, and the ones that exist are getting less and less affordable. Was this something, this interaction between these two, something you were interested in looking at? It seems important to me, but also, you know, a particularly hard thing
1: to measure. It's a great question. I remember in grad school, Raj Chetty asking me the same question that you just asked, and wow, we never very smart right now. You you are you are quite literally a genius by the (laughs) metrics of the MacArthur Foundation. Um, And I remember thinking, wow, that would be really interesting to look at, but I don't know how to do it, especially with sort of fewer, even smaller sample sizes, and so um, even you, genius Shane. Uh, and Raj couldn't we, we couldn't figure out how to look at it, although it's I'd be interested to in future work. OK, one thing you do look
0: at is how these land use regulations interact with geographical constraints to influence income convergence. And we'll include this paper in the show notes. But you use Albert Saiz's 2010 study showing that housing supply is less elastic. Again, that means just less responsive to rising demand, rising incomes in places constrained by geographical or topographical limits like steep slopes, bodies of water, that kind of thing. If I'm understanding your findings correctly, you show that these geographical constraints didn't have much effect on the housing supply prior to 1980 or so, and you attribute that to the relative lack of land use regulations at that time. So in other words, land may have been limited all that time, but the right to build taller buildings was not, so the geographical constraints just didn't matter all that much. But as land use rules got more restrictive, those limits became more of a binding constraint because building up was no longer as much of an option. I bring this up because I feel like sometimes Saiz's work can be interpreted as saying that land use regulations don't really matter that much, and what housing supply and affordability really come down to is just this availability of undeveloped land on the fringes of the urban area. This seems to say your paper seems to say that those geographical limits certainly matter but it's the increasing restrictiveness of land use regulations that's really made the geography and topography so relevant and so binding. Is that the right interpretation? Yeah,
1: that was awesome. <laughs> Again, you're helping you're helping us rewrite the paper although unfortunately it got published already, but that's exactly right. <laughs> like, you know, the it's not not geography, it's institutions and the institutions shape how we interact with our geography. That was that was an awesome summary.
2: And, you know, I mean, I think uh, just to add on to that and, and make it concrete for the listeners, you mentioned, Peter, how you're in Chicago when a, a single family home comes down, it gets replaced with a fourplex. Um, and, you know, Los Angeles is a place that according to SAES's, uh, you know, kind of index it has a lot of steep slopes, like there's mountain ranges running right through the middle of the city. And it is hard to build on those steep slopes, although if you're rich enough, you certainly can. But I look out the window of my office, and what I should see based on the housing prices is probably a bunch of five-story buildings. And what I see instead are a bunch of single-family homes, right? There there really is, in a lot of these places, just to drive the point home, there's plenty of land, right? It's just not vacant. It's underused. And we've sort of uh, and as we're about to get into, we've we've created rules that trap them in this under trap these parcels in this underuse, and that I think is a you know an illustration of what you found, which is that fifty years ago that wasn't the case. Like you, you knocked out a single family home, you could put up a, a tenplex, and today can't in
1: some places. Yeah, yeah, in some places, <laughs> right? It's, <laughs> it's the, you know, but it's yeah. it's interesting. Like different different regions have taken some have basically taken an approach of stasis of we want to stay the same and. Others have taken an approach of we want to embrace the growth and, you know, there's the awkwardness of the shiny building, but then there's the benefits of the cheap housing or at least cheaper, much cheaper housing. And, And, you know, this now we're getting a little bit off, but I can't help but
2: editorialize. It's just that the awkwardness of the shiny building really doesn't last that long, right? That almost any place you go, I mean, you could be walking down the street and someone could point at a building and be like, you know, when we built that, like everybody hated it. Like, but otherwise, you'd never know, right? I mean, like, places grow into themselves, and, and uh, it, I mean, my favorite example of this is that when Brooklyn first started getting brownstones, everybody hated them. But now, of course, they're iconic Brooklyn. That's cool. And so it is it, it is a legitimate political problem, but one that I think the, the study of urban history suggests, like, yeah, like, people don't like new stuff, they don't like change, but you know, give it 40 years. And when someone proposes knocking that over, everybody will lose their mind.
1: But there's a weird, let's just go a little deeper on this. So there's some weird change there, where it used to be that either people were okay with knocking stuff down to build something new, or people were unhappy, but didn't have the political voice to articulate that. But either way, the old thing got knocked down in favor of the new thing. Whereas now, you know, people who want things to stay the same, not in an economic sense, but just in a built environment sense somehow those arguments are are winning out. Um, And like, you know, even in my neighborhood, I'm just thinking about like, you know, there was a, a grocery store closed. And, you know, we got 50 units, I was jumping up and down for joy. But a bunch of people were mad that there were 50 units being put there. And it took a lot of persuasion. And you know, I don't know. I, I hope that more people, more places become like Chicago as opposed to Chicago becomes more like the other places.
2: Oh, and, and me too. And I think this is actually probably a, a pretty good segue into what we're about to talk about, you know, with with your your measurement of regulation. But, you know, we've had people on the podcast and, and certainly there's a lot of writing and planning history about how, you know, to your point, it's, uh, there was a combination of both, like, you know, people not being maybe as upset, but also not having the power and, a series of changes, legislative and judicial in the 70s, just uh, gave folks who who were upset by change a little bit more, a few more tools. And I think also, it is fair to say that there was some overreach in the 60s that really fueled that fire, right, with urban renewal and things like that. And I think a lot of that, the reaction was misdirected, and, and, and the pendulum swung a little too far. But you look back on some of the things that happened, and you can say, okay, yeah, like I could I could see where you want some more restrictions on development. Right. It didn't just come out of nowhere. Yeah.
1: But there's there's a particular irony in that. So a lot of ha- a lot of the like environmental regulations came out of the Bay Area and my grandma was one of the like original activists and save the bay and like has, you know, told us stories about like driving up to Sacramento and waiting for such a long time to testify. And to be clear, I also want to save the Bay, you know, I really like the Bay based on our prior conversation. But at the same time, it's like, it's really hard to get the balance right. And so now in in certain ways, I think that like this research suggests that um, we might have overshot on that dimension.
2: Yeah. And I'll I'll just make one last comment about this, which is, you know, that your grandma's story illustrates another real curiosity that I think historians have investigated and and could be studied more, which is just that this general sense of this general agenda uh, that involves a lot of great purposes, stopping pollution, you know, saving the Bay and things like that became, and and it didn't necessarily have to become this, but it did become sort of inextricably bound to an idea of stopping new housing. And so you do have this very strange dynamic where, uh, you know, in San Francisco, in Boston, you know, places that became sort of the bulwarks of American liberalism, you run down this list of goals. And, you know, someone like me is like, yeah, check, I'm on board, I'm on board. Then it's like no infill housing. And you're like, wait, wait, what a minute. Um, but that is what we live with. And I think it is sort of a an idiosyncrasy of kind of the, the trajectory of American liberalism that on the coast, we now pay the price for.
1: Can I add one more thing? I know that we're, it's, we're going deeper, but I hope that's that's good. So the legacy of um, George Stigler, who was a University of Chicago economist who was a critic of lots of government regulation, was basically ringing through my mind when you were talking about how we think about in, environmental regulation. And Stigler's point, or one of Stigler's points, is that pretty much all regulations start out with good intentions. And sometimes they can get captured by insiders who benefit. And so, you know, one way to think of it is that, oh, it's just a mistake. We didn't know what we were doing. A different way to think about it is that current homeowners have a strong incentive to take a Save the Bay bandwagon, which might be about like not dumping more trash in the bay, and reappropriate it or reinterpret it as, you know, what you described, Mike, as like no new infill housing. You know, that's not... Is that helping the Bay? Is that hurting the Bay? Like, not really clear. But like, anytime that there's regulation, there there will be incumbents who want to come in and take advantage of it. Yeah. And a different way to think about this movement is that it basically saw an, op- saw an opportunity and ran, and ran with it in ways that w- perhaps were never intended.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, I, and a combination of both in the sense that it's a lot easier to say, I'm worried about the health of the wetlands, than I don't want any more neighbors.
0: Well, I think we can wrap things up, but this paper was published in 2017 and so I'm, you know, curious if you've if you followed this data at all, if you've seen any change in the trends, positive or negative.
1: And and I know that you you had a question for us as well that you, you wanted to ask. Well, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about California. So I mean, California is, you know, ground zero for the YIMBY movement and uh I don't know, let's talk about housing supply in LA, like How's it going? How much is uh you know what's what's gotten through the state legislature? What's Gavin Newsom going to get through this year? And then what do you think is going to move the needle?
2: As uh, a
0: <laughs>
1: pundit time. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, let me let me
2: uh let me say one last thing about Peter's paper before before we jump into this because it just occurred to me. One thing that sometimes uh, I think when when it came up a little bit too when Moretti's paper came out, uh the the one Peter mentioned earlier about convergence Which is that sometimes I think you can you can hear this this storyline of like, oh, it's harder for lower income people to move to higher income places. And I think superficially someone could say, well, OK, but like they can still go someplace else or if they're better off staying in, you know, Kansas or something, you know, because they actually when you when you talk about net of housing costs, like that's where they should stay. And and I think it's important to point out. Peter's pointed out, I think, very eloquently. Like, no, there's 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 a lot of good in just personal mobility, right? There, there's a there's positive good in that it, you know, it, it can help make people better off. But there's just sort of some normative good too in people being able to strike out on their own. But the other thing that I want to note is that, like, all of these calculations and Peter, please correct me if I'm wrong, really are conditional. Also, on like you get a job. Right. And and one of the Mm -hmm. things about these poorer places is that they just have much higher unemployment rates. And so it's one thing to say like, oh, yeah, uh, if you stay in a, a lower income place and you get a job as a janitor, net of housing costs, you actually make more than if you move to Los Angeles or Boston, get a job as a janitor. But like you have to get the job. And, and mm-hmm. I think that there's, you know, the, this, this uneven geography of opportunity that we have, just in terms of where jobs are, really suggests that what, what Peter and his co-author have documented, it is really important for people's well-being. It's not just a matter of, like, where you happen to be um, and your income after housing costs. It's also, like, can you be in a place where your probability of getting a job is higher? And that that can matter a lot. Yeah. But to to Peter's question, right? So. Yeah, now we're now we're going to predict the future based on what will happen in Sacramento. So no one should <laughs> should hold us to any of this. But you're absolutely right. I think if you around the time that you published your paper was around the time that the California Emb movement got going, and I would say it really gathered steam. And in the last two years, uh, we've seen some very significant advances, and not necessarily where. Where the attention was, right? And mm-hmm. what I mean by that is that in 2018-2019, uh, Scott Wiener, a state senator from San Francisco, authored some bills. Uh, to e- Each each of those years, he offered a version of a bill, a, a big upzoning bill that really attracted most of the attention, right? Just mm-hmm. sort of like if you're a half mile from a transit stop, you can build a four-story building. And, and neither of those uh, made it out of a committee, right? They they were stopped pretty early. They didn't go to full votes, but and so it, i think if you're just watching that you would say like oh well this is ambitious but it's not going anywhere but i'm over, i'm simplifying a little bit but i think what i would say is that that movement and the legislators who are affiliated with it managed to sort of very quietly build something like those bills piece by piece through through legislation and i'm not a political scientist but it's a, it seems to me like a very interesting case study on how things get done in a state legislature and now, you know, knock on wood,
1: I think we are... It sounds like Matt Iglesias's secret Congress.
2: Yeah, it, it is of sort of uh, like that. It is sort of like post, that. Except at the yeah. state
1: level instead of the... Yeah, except level. at
2: the state level. So the, the, the very big controversial lightning rod um, sort of just it gets a lot of attention and it famously... In front lightning rod like the perfect analogy here. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, quietly you build up something else. And so... I think that the table is set to see a lot of housing production. And of course, it, it coincides with a dramatic surge in interest rates. So I'm not sure how much actual not development planned. we'll yeah. see. <laughs> um, but I, I think, you know, and, and Shane, of course, is deeply involved in this too. And so I'll, I'll let him weigh in. But what I would say is that almost anybody who's been studying this or thinking about it has to be cheered by the progress we've made, but we're still not seeing the buildings going up yet and so as a result if you're if you're walking through our city for instance you still see everywhere the evidence of our housing crisis
0: yeah i think that that was going to be my main observation that i think at the state level there's been a lot of great progress and it's progress that maybe only could have happened at the state level, Uh, even to this day, you know, we've been... Since since Scott Wiener proposed those bills to upzone, you know, and even before, cities have said, no, we don't want this, we can do it ourselves, we know our communities better. But, you know, you look back now, five years later, and what have individual cities done to address the housing supply crisis? Not a whole lot, other than the things like updating their housing elements that are now mandated by the state and actually have some teeth behind them and are more uh, kind of ambitious than they used to be. But because we didn't do that sort of all at once, let's just upzone everything near transit approach, it did go to the individual municipalities to, you know, they have much more aggressive targets that are are set for them by the state, but it's still up to them to create the actual housing element and the zoning maps and everything that go along with it. And so it's it's gone from what would have been just kind of a snap of your fingers kind of approach to a multi-year um, and really, you know, ultimately will be a multi-decade effort. And so for all the bills that have passed, um, not just on housing supply, but on tenant protections and, and subsidies and other things as well, housing production in California has been pretty flat, maybe even fallen a little bit over the last few years and so we have a long way to go. And I think there is hope, though, that these bills, in particular, the ones mandating these more accountable and more ambitious housing elements, will actually create the the framework or the context for housing to be built going forward.
1: One observation and one question for you. So the observation is if interest rates are high and builders aren't willing to build, that reduces perhaps some of the immediate decrease in house prices that would usually come from relaxing regulations and on one hand you can you sort of said well well that's probably parv- why we're not seeing an impact yet but on the other hand that makes it easier politically to get done look all we're going to do is change these rules there'll be no immediate effect mm-hmm. because no one's building anything anyway and then you know voila interest rates come down and under you know in 2026 and you get a, bi- a big burst in construction and ho- hopefully without a a reversal in the the progress that's been made, and then the question is just: I'm curious whether you think there are political dividends or political costs to the advocates who are to the to the legislators, I should say, who are advancing these rules, particularly in an environment where you don't see the housing production come right away. Is this is this helping or is this hurting those elected officials and their sort of careers? I wanted to jump in and say that the idea that you know. This or that bill or
0: or whatever would not produce a lot of housing would somehow mute opposition. Uh, I don't think has been borne out <laughs> based <laughs> Lomp on Lomp. Okay. things like SB nine, which okay, you know, allows four units on. You can split a lot into two and then build a duplex on each, so you can build four units where one previously was allowed. Mm-hmm. Every analysis found that like this is not actually going to produce a ton of housing, but of course, as it was moving through the legislature, it was you know a sky is falling kind of. Uh, freak out on mm-hmm. the part of a lot of advocates and homeowners and and uh, and cities themselves so uh, i'll let mike tackle the question and i can i can fill in on it too
2: yeah I, I i i would add to the what to shane's comment which is response to your observation which is just that you know among the people who are who have really staked out a position as being against or suspicious of development one hallmark, in my opinion, of their worldview is that they vastly overestimate the amount of development that's happening anyways, right? I mean, you talk to some people in Los Angeles and San Francisco, and they're like, oh my God, all the development. And so even if not much gets built, like they'll probably see that one building and be like, my God, we're under siege. And you know, And I do think in part, this is an artifact of, especially in Los Angeles, but even in San Francisco, to some extent, in so much of the city is so hard to build in that when you do build, you build very intensively where you build, and so of course it is noticeable that now you have a, a sixteen-story building in Los Angeles, um, and most of the city is two or three stories. But I think that that biases people that you know they there's some people who just think a lot of developments happening no matter what, uh, you know, if we could be so lucky. <laughs> the question of of whether people pay the price, and again, like the the right person to ask about this would be some, you know, legislative whip up in Sacramento. But, but my observation is that uh, much as the, much as is the case in, in the national Congress, like some members will be vulnerable on some issues and the ones who are kind of leading the charge on this are people who are safe. You know, they, they, they wouldn't do it otherwise. And so, you know, and, and we just were at an event not too long ago where, um, a woman who had been, she's no longer a legislative aide to Scott Wiener, sort of said that the way he spoke to legislators in Southern California, it was like, you know, he's like, I don't care if you blame me for this, right? Because your voters can't vote me out of office. Like, as long as I'm safe in my little area of San Francisco, I can get out there and push for housing in all of California. And it's, I think, you know, this is one of the challenges that any legislative leader, whether it's the pro tem of California Senate or the Speaker of the Assembly, this is what they have to do once they decide that an issue is important. It's like, well, who's who's on the vulnerable flanks and who can really stick their neck out? But we have not... So I guess what I would say is we have not seen any of the champions even come close to losing election. But we've also yeah, seen... I think it is, yeah,
0: it is pretty remarkable yeah. that... Because you know, at the local level, you certainly... There's no question people get voted out of office yeah. for taking a hard vote, maybe even doing the thing that was legally required of them to approve a development that is compliant with the zoning code, and they will lose their seat, you know, and especially in these smaller cities and towns. But you go to the state level, and I mean, I think this is part of why I'm very bullish on state reform and not so much on local reform is I just haven't seen much evidence of people taking hard votes on housing uh, and land use at the state level and being punished for it. Which is, you know, a, a little bit surprising, but for whatever reason, people maybe just don't really—they don't connect their state officials to that issue, and so it's just not really salient for how they vote, perhaps. But that's purely speculation, just on the observation that it doesn't really seem to, to, yeah. to harm people taking these votes.
2: But also, and also, when push comes to shove, the the state representatives who might pay a price do get protected. In a way that the locals can't. So if you look at SB 9, for instance, the the Democrats in Southern California in the state legislature were nowhere on that. They, they, They voted no or they abstained and things like that. And on the one hand, like you live here and you're disappointed in them. And on the other hand, you're like, well, maybe this is just savvy on the part of the leadership up there who say, you know what, we can get this bill through without having these people risk their seats. I mean, that's something that's very hard to do in a city council.
1: I mean, it's also sounds like a good exercise of political leadership. Like, you know, we usually yeah. want like the president to worry about the national interest. And it sounds like you're saying that some of the state leadership is worrying about the state interest as opposed to, you know, so that's, that's yeah. inspiring. That's the profile encourage, courage, potentially. I guess it depends it, how risky and, it is. But.
2: Right. And it is, mm-hmm. you know, that um, the state preemption is not appropriate for everything, but this, this is like a the hallmark case for why a state might preempt, which is that the local governments acting on their own. And, and, and you don't, it's not because they're evil or anything. It's because the incentives that face local officials lead them to act in ways that uh, diminish the welfare of Californians. Right. And Mm -hmm. so like just a, a, a federalism textbook would just say, well, now is the time for that higher level of government to step in and say, no, like we have a, Essentially, a collective action problem here, where all these local governments pursuing their own interests are are giving us an outcome none of us wanted, and so we have we have an intervention, and and we are we are getting that. But I do think that um, one of the thing that really that really has allowed it to happen is that you are able to have these legislators in very safe seats, basically inflict housing on the rest of the state, um, and and it just it's. We can't do that uh, at the local level. I mean, mm-hmm. I think just the way, it's, the way it's structured is very hard. And then also just empirically, as Shane pointed out, it just hasn't happened.
1: It's also interesting because in some sense, what I think you're saying is that voters' views might not have changed that much, that it's still unpopular. To, you might have thought that people's views would change once the rent got damn high enough. In a sense, that's what you're saying is that You know, the rent is too damn high, but voters views haven't changed. But we're nevertheless seeing some political leadership. So I think that's interesting. I'll I'll say one more thing here and then then we got to go. But that is a really good
0: observation, an important one. And I think maybe part of the the reason that is happening. uh, Well, I guess I should first say housing is actually a lot more popular than is sometimes appreciated when people have been surveyed about building more housing in their neighborhoods, even if it's bigger. In California, it's, you know, 60, 65 percent support, pretty, pretty significant. And, you know, to talk about the politics on this a little bit again, I think part of this probably comes down to the fact that state legislators are being elected during the presidential cycle and the midterms. Hmm. And so they have a lot higher turnout, a larger share of the population, probably a younger share, more renters are turning out to elect them than The people who are electing city council members most of those elections being held um and this is changing fortunately but they are often held in off-year uh elections you know in 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 odd years and so the turnout you know we've had elections in los angeles where the mayor was elected with like 11 or 15 percent turnout and so you know that kind of thing and so that's changing and i think that dynamic itself is probably part of why you have a little more openness to these these issues at the state level and, and they're a little more protected because they have a little bit of a different electorate neat okay peter ganong thank you for coming on the housing voice podcast thank you for giving us the opportunity to be political commentators it's, yeah. it's what i've always dreamed of and <laughs> uh, this was great thank you again yeah, thanks peter thanks this was really fun You can read more about Peter's research on our website, lewis.ucla.edu. Show notes and a transcript of the interview are there, too. The UCLA Lewis Center is on Facebook and Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips, and Mike is there at Michael Manville 6. Thank you again for listening. We will see you next time.